Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2014 AWP conference in Seattle. The recording features Gish Jen and Tobias Wolf. You will now hear Elena Passarello and Jess Walter provide introductions. Hi, everyone. My name is Elena Passarello. And it is my great pleasure to welcome you all to an exciting 75 minutes with two great fiction writers. Before we begin, I'd like to remind everybody to please turn off all of your mechanical devices. And um, there'll be tweet seats in the front, but make sure that even your devices in the tweet seats are set on silent. There's going to be a signing immediately following the event right outside those doors. But if you could do us a favor and let the authors exit before we head out, that would probably make everything a lot more expeditious. The reason that I'm here is I'm a member of the faculty at Oregon State University, and the School of Writing, Literature, and Film is the sponsor for this afternoon's event. I have the pleasure of teaching in the MFA program, which is a vibrant program founded in 2002 that has grown to a cohort of 27 fully funded students in fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. And we have some of the best karaoke singers this side of the Rockies, if I do say so myself. In 2011, thanks to the generosity of OSU alumni Patrick and Vicki Stone, we established the Stone Award in Lifetime Literary Achievement. It's one of the nation's most generous literary prizes. In 2011, it was given to Joyce Carol Oates and our 2014 recipient, who we will honor on May 21st and 22nd, is sitting right here to my left, Mr. Tobias Wolf. All of us at Oregon State are proud of our convivial and hardworking community, and we're so pleased to be here at this terrific AWP event. Speaking of the event, let's get it started. The introductions will be delivered by the author of Beautiful Ruins and Other Novels, Mr. Jess Walter. Thank you. And for the record, you can take pictures of me, but I'm the only one. I like it, actually. Thank you, everyone. This is my first AWP, and I've had friends say, you know, it can get a little tiring, and I realize that what begins as a giant party ends as a kind of hostage situation. Um, <laughs> but we are near the end, I promise, and what a, great, what a great group of events we've got here. I was actually a little nervous about my first AWP because I'd heard about the clubbiness and the constant networking and the nerdy debauchery. And since I'm not really affiliated with any teaching institution myself, I wondered, will I even fit in? Will the conversations be more sophisticated than the usual ramblings I have with my writer friends? Dude, are you watching True Detective? <laughs> Would I even know what to say? Would I get nervous and in a burst of insecurity for no particular reason blurt out the word pedagogy? <laughs> Do I even know how to pronounce pedagogy? But the very first writer I saw here dispelled any reservations I might have had. An accomplished novelist from a writing program I'd once visited, he was coming out of a convenience store when he saw me and said, what the hell, man? Pot's legal in Seattle and you can't buy it in stores? <laughs> I shrugged, that's pedagogy for you. <laughs> Dude, he said, are you watching True Detective? So thank you, AWP, for putting on this amazing conference and for in inviting an unemployed guy from Spokane to do a few things. Thanks, too, to the host of this event, Oregon State University, to Elena, to Marjorie Sander, to Keith Scribner, and all the faculty of Oregon State. I'm honored to be considered a friend of such a terrific writing program. 
Today, we're here to listen to and celebrate two writers whose varied work exists at the center of American culture in America, two writers whose novels, stories, memoirs, and essays some of us studied, some of us have taught, and all of us admire. I prepared a quite long laudatory introduction for both of these eminent writers, but as you might have read, AWP had to make a last-minute revenue deal with the city of Seattle to open up the conference to the public today. Little did I know that as part of that deal, AWP agreed to a 3% tax on all gushing literary praise. <laughs> Even the empty praise down in the hotel lobby and bar meant to coax other writers up to a hotel room is subject to this tax. <laughs> so because of this, the conference is now running at a, at a deficit of almost $12 billion. <laughs> After crunching the numbers, I realized I should keep these introductions short, in spite of the fact that I could go on and on about these brilliant writers and their many accomplishments. Gis Jen was born in Long Island to parents who had emigrated from China in the 1940s. A graduate of Harvard, she dropped out of Stanford Business School to get her MFA in fiction. In other words, your parents' worst nightmare. <laughs> but we readers are lucky because Gis Jen is a brilliant creator of trenchant, witty novels and stories. There are those writers whose indelible voice you recall the way you recall meeting someone new, and Jen's audacious and incisive novel, The Typical American, announced itself to me that way. It's an American story, she writes of her protagonist, Ralph Chang, and goes on, we meet him at six. He doesn't know where or what America is. This has been the great theme of Gish Jen's work over the last 25 years, exploring exactly what and where America is, not just for recent immigrants or the children of immigrants who are so charmed and repelled and baffled, but for all of us, natives and immigrants of every generation, charmed, repelled, and baffled by our times and our country. The New York Times said of typical American, no paraphrase could capture the intelligence of Gish Jen's prose, its epigrammatic sweep and swiftness. The author just keeps coming at you line after stunning line. Line after stunning line, Gish Jen has authored three other novels, Mona in the Promised Land, The Love Wife and the World and Town, as well as a book of short fiction, Who's Irish? She has been a Fulbright Fellow, won a Guggenheim, and won the Lannan Liter Literary Award. Her short fiction has been much anthologized, and her story, Beginners, was chosen by John Updike for the best American short stories of the century. Her latest is a book of essays, Tiger Writing, Art, Culture, and the Interdependent Self, and it was originally delivered for the William E. Massey Senior Lectures in the History of American Civilization at Harvard. Describing it with a reckless abandon that is going to cost AWP a bundle, <laughs> Juno Diaz said this, Gis Jen is the great American novelist we're always hearing about, and in Tiger Writing, she delivers a profound meditation on the divergent roles that storytelling, art-making, and selfhood. Penetrating, inspired, and yes, indispensable. Ladies and gentlemen, Gis Jen. Thank you so much. I can't tell you what an honor it is to be here, because I feel like after Jess's intro, I might start crying, but that would not do. I'm going to read from my novel, World in Town. I don't know how many of you have had this experience of being in one world when you know strength from another world pulls on you. That's what happens to my protagonist, Hattie Kong. She is 68 years old. She's a Chinese immigrant who came to the United States in the 1940s when she was in her teens. But she was actually someone who was half American before she came because her mother was an American missionary from Iowa. 
Her father, on the other hand, was a descendant of Confucius. As a descendant of Confucius, he had the right to be buried in the Confucian family graveyard. I don't know how many of you have been to China. There's a town called Chufu, about two-thirds of the way up from Shanghai to Beijing. And there are 2,000 years of, of Confucian descendants have been buried. It's a very, very beautiful place. It's very, very old trees, uh, very, very evocative, very, very magical. And I think it says something about what the 20th century was for China, that Hattie's parents are not buried there, but elsewhere, as you will hear. And as a result of this, some of Hattie's relatives say they're having bad luck. And so they're sending her emails. I'm going to read three short sections from the book today. And the first of them is one of these emails. This is from Hattie's niece, Tina, in Hong Kong, who wants Hattie to move her parents back to Chufu. She says, we write to you because of our daughter, Bobby. You remember her, number one? Went to Andover, then MIT, then Harvard Business School, got a nice job on Wall Street. But now, all of a sudden, she quit that job to live with a drummer. <laughs> and on top of it, tried to sell the apartment we give to her. Very nice place, Upper East Side, have doorman, everything. She do not care. All she can think about is drum something. <laughs> we worry. She is our number one daughter. How can this happen to our family? We analyze, in particular, Johnson. Johnson quite well known for his analysis. But in the end, there is only one thing we can guess. Only we can guess that the graves of grandpa and grandma are not auspicious. The story we always hear about is how grandpa and grandma were not buried in Chufu as they like to be. Hogwash, thanks, Hattie. Instead, because they died in Taiwan, first uncle buried them in Taiwan. And then when he himself leaving Taiwan, no one left to sweep the grave. He had to move them somewhere else. Mainland still closed, cannot bury them there. So he said, okay, how about Iowa? <laughs> never mind that grandpa never visited Iowa once in his life. First uncle said, at least they go to Iowa together. And of course, when the bone picker opened the graves, looked like the bones are dry. And that is true that if graves are moved, there are these people called bone pickers, so pick the bones out. So first uncle say, you see, if the feng shui no good, the bones are not dry even many years later. He say, I pick a good place the first time, now I pick another good place. Iowa is good. But now the Iowa feng shui not so good as before. Our family faced difficulty again. We hear there's a shopping center moving right next to our grandparents. And that is why our family, our luck not so good. Everything leaking away. Not just our branch, many cousins say it too. Some of them lose money, a lot of money. So now we are thinking, how do you feel about if grandpa and grandma should be moved to Chufu, which is their real home? We believe they are lonely in Iowa. No one could sweep grave there. Of course, we understand there is some question whether grandma can stay in the graveyard in Chufu too. But we feel confident someone can arrange it. Really, you just have to find out who you should pay. After all, grandpa is still had the name Kong, and who can even see grandma is a foreign devil anymore? <laughs> now she is not even bones, only ashes of pieces, something like that. And by the way, I do not think Confucius ever said a big nose cannot be buried in the family graveyard. <laughs> he never even thought about that case. Probably he does not even know nose can get so big. <laughs> Everyone say American people do not take care of their parents' grave, just let the weeds grow all over their thinking is different. You know better than anyone the kind of clothes they wear. They think that is normal. 
Anyway, we have been talking to some other family member. Everyone agrees. Our family, something wrong. Fallen leaves should return to their roots, right? We should do something. But what do you think? What does Hattie think? If you're near red dye, you will turn red. If you're near black, you'll turn black. Who knows But if, that if she had grown up in Hong Kong, she'd be a superstitious nut too. As it is, though, she just writes that she's sorry, but moving the graves is not an option. You know, Hattie has come to this small New England town to escape the past, but as you can gather from that passage, this past isn't so easy to escape. This next section involves a man named Carter Hatch, who has just retired and has also come to this small town to start over. Hattie knows Carter because she lived with his family when she first came to the United States, and also because she used to work with him in his lab before she became a teacher. They were both neurobiologists, and they often talked about what they were talking about without talking about it. <laughs> You'll hear Joe referred to in this passage. That's Hattie's husband, who has recently died. But this is back in the lab. Why don't we have three eyes, Carter would wonder sometimes on the phone, or why can't we see behind us, or why can't we see infrared, or why can't we echolocate? To which she would reply, some things are just not given to us. Then he would pause, and well, Hattie would have to admit that there were whole years where she more or less lived for those moments of saying nothing. Even after she married Joe and had Josh, she still heard them. As Joe knew, of course, she had no secrets from Joe. And mostly he would just hold her tighter then, wrapping her in his long arms and kissing her face in a circle. Sometimes, though, he would go out for a walk with the dogs. And once when he asked her what she heard when they made love and she didn't answer, he went on to ask her what she saw and who. And when she didn't answer that either, he went and slept on the couch for a week. Even when he was sick, he would ask her, Groggy, his voice raspy from his breathing tube, he would ask, are you going to look up Carter Hatch when I'm dead? Never mind that she hadn't seen Carter for decades by then. The sicker Joe got, the angrier he got. Not unlike a child separating from his parents, had he thought, she understood. And yet still it was hard to hear. Be kind, she would tell him as he slept, please. Give me your kindness to remember, not this. But he could only give what he had. You should have married Carter, he'd say. Why didn't you marry Carter? As if she could have married Carter, when Hattie was too old for Carter, when Hattie was too short for Carter, when Hattie was impossible, when she didn't see where he was coming from, when she didn't see where others were coming from, when she didn't see how things worked, what the world was. Don't you see, Carter would say, don't you see? There was a Nobel laureate next door to the hatchery. That's what they call their lab. Hattie was not nice to him because of his prize. Neither was she nice to his minions when they treated students the way that they had been treated. You forget that you yourself will only be a minion, as you put it, for a while, Carter said. Do not overinvest in this cause. And not every grievance is founded, you know. What's your evidence? And you identify too much with the trot upon. It's an outsider's outlook. But she could not help seeing what she saw people treated as expendable. They make themselves part of the picture, then just air, get airbrushed out, she said. Carter shrugged. This is a lab, not an experiment in living. You sound like El Hancho, that's his father. I don't care who I sound like. I mean, you learn not to care either. They had different ideas about integrity. She believed it was something in the person, 
He thought it was something in the work. Not that there weren't lines you couldn't cross. There were, absolutely. Still, he thought it important to understand where you had leeway. He thought it better to be effective than noble. You're like Meredith, he said once. That's his ex-wife. More interested in how the world judges you than in what it becomes. And it's a kind of vanity. And once you're not on trial. Interesting, she said. It's important to know your position from yourself, he said. Is it? Miss Confucius, enough. She was in training in his lab for now, he would say. When the day came for her to go, she should go. And they hoped, if they played their cards right, maybe come back as an equal someday, if not to the university, then at least to the region. We have to be able to have lunch, she said several times. You must agree to be sure of that. And of course, she would promise that she would not have taken either his word or hers too seriously had he not hesitated over his hummus and pita one day and added, thoughtfully and deliberately, I'll help you. If you remember, you mean, she laughed. But he didn't reach for a carrot stick, as she thought that he would. Instead, he looked her square in the eyes and said gently, I'm going to do everything I can. And when she laughed again, he said, Hattie, and don't laugh. To which she replied, I'm just trying not to cry, Carter. And when he'd put his sandwich down and wiped his hand and took her hand for a moment, she accepted it. And when she got a job at a far off lab, she accepted that too. And when a job opened up in his department, he let her know right away. This is just right, he said. You go away and then you come back. Perfect. But of course, this is a novel, it's not perfect. Finally, I'm going to read one last section. This involves a Cambodian family who are also trying to start over. They've survived Pol Pot. They survived life in the refugee camps on the Thai border. And now they're trying to get away from the gangs in the inner city. They've moved in next door to Hattie. Um, and Hattie is teaching the mother of the family English. To follow the section, you need to know that a blue car has been coming to their house. The blue car is being sent by some Christian fundamentalists for their daughter's OP. Um, and also a white van has been coming to town, and that is unfortunately uh, full of their son's former gang member friends, the very ones they've been trying to escape. The mother's name is Mum. Thai, asks Mum. Tea, says Hattie. Yes, I would love some tea. Mum fills a white enamel saucepan with water and offers Hattie some dried anchovies. Thank you. Delicious. Mum's head bobs. You should say you're welcome. You're welcome. Hattie's mother may have been a heretic, but when Hattie was a girl, her English lessons were based on the Bible. She can still see her old green primer with a cross on its cover, all those bearded foreign devils with helmets on, too. Still, it was a textbook. Mom should probably have a textbook. For now, Hattie simply runs through the vowels, noting problems. Can you say bait? Bay, says Mom. Can you say bat? Bat. Beat? Bee. Bet? The next lesson, Hattie works on pronunciation again, but adds some phrases. Thank you. Thanks. How are you? The sounds are hard for mom, but she smiles the whole time, tentative but eager. Learning English at her age is not easy. She might as well be trying to tuck Mount High under her arm and jump over the North Sea, as Hattie's father used to say. Still, she reminds Hattie of how students make the teacher. Mom is such a different student than Sophie, 
But then her students were all different, she remembers, and how each one gave her a bit of herself. She remembers that too. She looks forward to coming again. The third lesson, Gift, that's the baby, is awake and hurling things. Having just discovered that he can walk and throw things at the same time, he picks up the remote control and throws it. Next, a bottle opener, next, a bunch of keys, and meh, he shouts, meh, meh, meh. His chest is streaked with drool, his face bright with naughty delight. Still, mom calmly sets out a dish of dried mango, leaving to Chong, that's her husband, to make loud, scary noises, heck, heck. He leans forward, raising a threatening hand. Gift just laughs. Mom frowns. Do you want to meet another time, Hattie asks. Chung shouts. Gift goes running out of the room, his diaper hanging off. Meh, meh, meh. Mom leans forward to comment on all this, she thinks. But no. Why, she says instead. Ka. Hattie thinks. The white car, is it back? Thrin, Mom says. She closes her eyes, shaking her head. You are worried about Sarun, his friends. Worry, she says clearly, a word she knows. He's upsetting her husband. Mom nods, pensive. Child? Child? Yes, I have a son. Here? Here? No, says Hattie. He lives far away, far, far away. Gone? Gone? Yes, he's gone. Mom takes this in. Her face is smooth as a girl's, but her glance is a mother's glance, appraising and thoughtful. Chao, gone, she says. No, she hesitates. Stay? Stay, says Mom. No, stay. Do children stay in Cambodia? Mom nods. It's hard here, you're right. The children don't stay. Mother, father, Mom stops. Yes, mother, father are alone here. The children don't stay. You self? Do I live by myself? Yes. Mom shakes her head, hot. Yes, it's hard, quiet. Hattie speaks clearly and slowly. You do everything yourself. Decide everything yourself. Eat by yourself. She smiles a little. Some people like it, but I find it hard. Hard, Mom says again sympathetically. Sarun, Sarun. Why ka? Sarun is getting in the white car. So P. So P, yes. Blue car. So P is getting in the blue car. Mom shakes her head. It's hard. Hattie doesn't know what to say. I'm sorry. They should really work some more before Gift comes back, and Hattie has a lesson book for Mom in her bag. She should get it out. But instead, they just sit a moment, two women at the same table. It's quiet. Thank you. After the readings, we'll have a short Q&A up here and then be outside to sign books. So hopefully you'll stay around for that. Tobias Wolf and I first met working as writers and mercenaries in the jungles of Burma in the late 70s. 
where I saved him from drowning and suggested an alternate ending for the story that would become Bullet in the Brain. <laughs> Actually, none of that is true. In fact, we met in a bar in Spokane. But Tobias Wolff is the kind of writer whose work not only thrills and mystifies for its lucid brilliance, he is also the kind of writer you wish to emulate, to study with, to learn from, and yes, to have shared some great adventures with. Although I have to tell you, that bar in Spokane was no picnic. This is a homecoming of sorts for Toby. His brilliant memoir, This Boy's Life, which was written before memoirs had titles like Back to Rehab, Stint Six. <laughs> and My Year Without Gluten. <laughs> takes place in nearby Concrete, Washington, although early on, Toby and his mother lived in a boarding house in Seattle that smelled of mildew. I remember saying in Burma once, man, if you're gonna have a house in Seattle, you're gonna have to be more specific than that. <laughs> in this boy's life, he writes of stealing tricycles in Seattle and coasting them down the hills above Alki Beach and weaving through the winos around Pioneer Square to stare at guns in the windows of pawn shops, or in other words, AWP. About this boy's life, the New York Times wrote, it's so absolutely clear and hypnotic that a reader wants to take it apart and find some simple way to describe why it works so beautifully. That's why it's so nice to be here in Seattle honoring Tobias Wolf, who later this year will receive the Stone Award for Lifetime Literary Achievement from Oregon State, a prize for, quote, a writer of great accomplishment who has also been a generous mentor and an inspiration for new writers. I really can't imagine a more fitting recipient of a prize with that description. From his long tenure at Stanford, where he has guided the careers of some of America's best young writers, to students who only know him from his work, Wolf is the kind of presence who causes young people to want to write and causes writers to want to write better. In fact, around 1.30 this morning when I was trying to get back to my room to sleep, I ran into some great students from Purdue who tried to waylay me for just one more drink on me, I think. <laughs> And when I explained that I had to go finish my Tobias Wolf intro, they stopped and gasped and parted, their heads bowed quietly and reverently offering questions that I might use today. Unfortunately, the only one that I could rem remember this morning was this one. Did you know when you grew that awesome mustache that one day all the cool guys would be rocking them? Tobias Wolf is the author of three novels, four collections of stories, and two groundbreaking memoirs. Among his many honors and awards are the Story Prize, the LA Times Book Prize, the Rhea Award for Short Fiction, and the Penn Malamud Prize. The Chicago Tribune has said that Wolf's writing is as supple and distilled as any contemporary American writer's in its economy, in its structure, and most of all, in its candor, humor, and generosity of spirit. And Tim O'Brien says, the magic of Tobias Wolf's fiction cannot be explained. It is the ancient art of the master storyteller. Ladies and gentlemen, Tobias Wolf. Thank you, Thank you Jess. <laughs> Thank you. It's an honor to be on the stage with the authors of Beautiful Ruins and Ruby Ridge typical American, Mona in the Promised Land, these books I've loved. And I want to thank the people who brought us all together like this. It's an amazing undertaking. There are apparently 12 to 14,000 of us here, 
and we, you, you can actually find the rooms that things are in. Somehow it all worked. I think that the next time we invade a country, <laughs> it can't be far off. They ought to talk to these people. We couldn't do worse. We could do worse, rather. I'm going to read, I was thinking that since, the, you know, so many of us as writers are gathered together here and we're talking about writing and thinking about writing, I'm going to read from a novel old school that has a great deal to do with writing and the vocation and ambition around it. I just, I think, needs very little introduction. The narrator is a scholarship student in a boarding school back east. He comes from this very place. I have some history that went into the writing of this, but it is, it's a, it's a novel, not a memoir, which I, I guess means that no one in my family hated me after I finished it. So I'll just get going here. These are sections from the first chapter that I hope knit together well. There was a tradition at my school by which one boy was, I, I should say that, the school invites a visiting writer two or three a year to the school out of, a, out of an endowed fund, and that's the context for this. There was a tradition at my school by which one boy was granted a private audience with each visiting writer. We contended for this honor by submitting a piece of our own work, poetry if the guest was a poet, fiction if a novelist. The writer chose the winner a week or so before arriving. The winner had his poem or story published in the school newspaper, and later, a photograph of him walking the headmaster's garden with the visiting writer. By custom, only boys in their last year were allowed to compete. That meant I'd spent the last three years looking on helplessly as boy after boy was plucked from the crowd of suitors and invited to stroll between the headmaster's prize roses in the blessed and blessing presence of literature itself, to speak of deep matters and receive counsel, and afterward be able to say, you liked by love possessed? You're kidding, I mean, Jesus. You ought to hear Mary McCarthy on the subject of cousins. It was hard to bear, especially when the winning manuscript came from the hand of someone you didn't like, or worse, from a boy who wasn't even known to be a contender. The winners generally came, predictably enough, from the same stock pond, boys who aced their English classes and submitted work to the school lit mag and hung around with other book-drunk boys. The writers didn't know us, so no one could accuse them of playing favorites, but that didn't stop us from disputing their choices. How could Robert Penn Warren prefer Kit Morton's plain dying grandmother story to Lance Levitt's stream of consciousness monologue from the viewpoint of a condemned man smoking his last cigarette while pouring daringly profane contempt over the judgment of a world that punishes you for one measly murder while ignoring the murder of millions. <laughs> it didn't seem right that Lance, who defied the decorums of language and bourgeois morality, 
should have to look on while Robert Penn Warren walked the garden with a sentimentalist like Kit, <laughs> whose story, through its vulgar nakedness of feeling, had moved me to secret tears. <laughs> I'm not exaggerating the importance to us of these trophy meetings. We cared, and I cared as much as anyone, because I not only read writers, I read about writers. I knew that Maupassant, whose stories I loved, had been taken up when young by Flaubert and Turgenev, Faulkner by Sherwood Anderson, Hemingway by Fitzgerald and Pound and Gertrude Stein. All these writers were welcomed by other writers. It seemed to follow that you needed such a welcome, yet before this could happen, you somehow, anyhow, had to meet the writer who was to welcome you. My idea of how this worked wasn't low or even practical. I never thought about making connections. My aspirations were mystical. I wanted to receive the laying on of hands that had written living stories and poems, hands that had touched the hands of other writers. I wanted to be anointed. Robert Frost's visit was announced in early October. At first, the news made me giddy, but that night I grew morose with the dread of defeat. I couldn't sleep. Finally, I got up and sat at my desk with two notebooks full of poetry I'd written when taking a break from stories. While my roommate muttered in his dreams, I bent over the pages and read piece after piece like song number eight. To the hopeless of the hopeless of the night, I sing my song and hopeless end my song. And do not pity me, for I am without hope. And, and do not pity them, for they are without hope. And there the poem ended. Beneath it, I had written fragment. I'd written fragment beneath most of the poems in the notebooks, and this description was in every case accurate. <laughs> Each of them had been composed in some fever of ardor or philosophy that deserted me before I could bring it to the point of significance. The few poems I had finished seemed, in the hard circle of light thrown by the gooseneck lamp, even more disappointing. The beauty of a fragment is that it still supports the hope of brilliant completeness. I thought of stitching several of them together into a sequence, a la The Wasteland, but that they would thereby become meaningful seemed too much to hope for. I would have to write something new. The deadline for submission was three weeks away. I could write a poem in that time, but what kind of poem should I write? It would have to stand out from those of my competitors, but at least I knew who my competitors were. One was Bill White, my roommate. Bill had already written most of a novel, the first chapter of which we'd published in Troubadour, our literary magazine. Two men and a woman are isolated in a hunting lodge during a blizzard. The narrator does not explain who they are, how they got there, why they're together. 
But as you read on, you begin to get the picture. One of the men is a famous actor. The woman is his wife. And the second man is a surgeon. The men are old friends, but it emerges that the actor's wife is having an affair with the surgeon, who, it turns out, had once saved the actor's life with an impromptu tracheotomy during a safari. <laughs> Have to take my hat off to you, said Montague. Tricky bit of tradecraft, given the circumstances. Storm blowing the damned tent down and the beaters into the liquor. I shan't forget it. <laughs> not at all, not at all, said Dr. Coates. The merest intern could have done as well, probably better. I shan't forget it, Montague repeated. <laughs> I'm forever in your debt, he added coldly. Aren't we all, said Ashley, pouring herself another scotch. She stared at the falling snow. Whatever would we do without the good doctor's services? You bitch, said Montague. <laughs> you perfectly beautiful bitch. <laughs> Though Bill hadn't let me read the rest of his novel, he was letting it settle before the final polish. I doubted that the hunting party's meticulously described rifles would stay in their cases for long. He had me worried. So did Jeff Purcell, known as Little Jeff, because we had another Jeff Purcell in our class, his cousin, Big Jeff. In fact, Little Jeff wasn't little, and Big Jeff wasn't big, just bigger than Little Jeff, <laughs> who resented Big Jeff, partly, no doubt, for inadvertently imposing this odious nickname on him. <laughs> little Jeff was a friend of mine, so like his other friends, I called him Purcell. Purcell habitually kept his arms folded across his chest like a Civil War general in a daguerreotype. This bellicose pose suited him. Under his bristling crew cut, he cultivated a sulfurous gift for invective and contempt. He was the Herod of our editorial sessions, poised to strike down every innocent who presumed to offer us a manuscript. He had exacting standards, moral, political, aesthetic. Purcell even flouted the timeless protocol of pretending to admire the work of his fellow editors. At one of our meetings, he declared that a story of mine called Suicide Note read as if it had been written after the narrator blew his brains out. <laughs> Purcell came from a rich social family, but you wouldn't have guessed it from his stories and poems, or maybe you would. His subject was the injustice of relations between high and low. He had written a ballad about a miner being sent deep into the earth to perish in a cave-in while the mine owner hand-feeds filet mignon to his hunting dogs, cooing to them in baby talk. And his last troubadour piece was an epistolary story in which a general writes congratulatory letters to various grieving women after getting their husbands and sons slaughtered. You may rejoice for your fallen hero, knowing that his heart was perforated for our glorious cause, and you and your little ones can rest assured that his missing head, wherever it may be, 
is filled with the pride of sacrifice and radiant memories of the homeland for which he died so eagerly. This story was, I felt sure, inspired by a certain passage in a farewell to arms, but when it came up for consideration, I bit my tongue and let it go. I myself was in debt to Hemingway, up to my years. So was Bill, my roommate. We even talked like Hemingway characters, though in travesty, as if to deny our discipleship. That is your bed, and it is a good bed. And you must make it, and you must make it well. <laughs> or, today is the day of meatloaf. The meatloaf is swell. It is swell, but when it is gone, the not having meatloaf will be tragic, and the meatloaf man will not come anymore. <laughs> These, then, were the boys who stood between me and Robert Frost. <laughs> of course, there were other self-confessed writers in my class, but I'd read their English papers and troubadour submissions and seen nothing to worry me except their desire. So much desire. Why did so many of us want to be writers? It seemed unreasonable, but there were reasons. The atmosphere of our school crackled with sexual static. We had the occasional dance with Miss Cobb's Academy and a few other girls' schools, but these brief affairs only cranked up the charge. And though from day to day we saw the master's wives Roberta Ramsey alone had the goods to enter our dreams. The absence of an actual girl to compete for meant that every other prize became feminized. For honors in sport, scholarship, music, and writing, we cracked our heads together like mountain rams. This aspect of my ambition was obscured to me. But there was another that I did recognize, though vaguely and almost in spite of myself, the problem of class. Class was a fact. Not just the clothes a boy wore, but how he wore them, how he spent his summers, the sports he knew how to play, his way of turning cold at the mention of money or at the spectacle of ambition too nakedly revealed. You felt it as a depth of ease in certain boys, their innate, affable assurance that they would not have to struggle for a place in the world, that it had already been reserved for them. A depth of ease, or in the case of Purcell and a few others, a sullen antipathy toward the padding that hemmed them in and muffled the edges of life. Yet even in the act of kicking against it, they were defined by it and protected by it and, to some extent, unconscious of it. Purcell himself had a collection of first editions you'd almost have to own a mine to pay for. Other boys must have felt the same intimations. Maybe that was why so many of them wanted to become writers. Maybe it seemed to them, as it did to me, that to be a writer was to escape the problems of blood and class. 
Writers formed a society of their own outside the common hierarchy. This gave them a power not conferred by privilege, the power to create images of the system they stood apart from and thereby to judge it. I hadn't heard anyone speak of a writer as having power. Truth, yes, wit, understanding, even courage, but never power. We had talked in class about Pasternak and his troubles and the long history of Russian writers being imprisoned and killed for not writing as the party wished. Augustus Caesar had sent our Latin masters, beloved Ovid, into exile. Yet the effect of all these stories was to make me feel not Caesar's power, but Caesar's fear of Ovid. And why would Caesar fear Ovid except for knowing that neither his divinity nor all his legions could protect him from a good line of poetry? Thank you. The room full of poets. Yeah, yeah, yeah no. <laughs> How well does that go over in concrete, I wonder. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. That's actually a great place to start our conversation, I think, though, that great piece about young writerly ambition. And when you're at AWP, of course, you're certainly aware of it. Can you both talk a little bit about ambition with yourselves as younger writers? both its, its pitfalls and, and how it drives you, and, and then now, if, if you see ambition the same way, does it, does, is that still what drives you, the, the sort of humming ambition of class? Maybe you start, Toby? That's, that's a good question. I mean, ambition, how could you do anything without, without that? I mean, how, how, it depends on how we define it, too. I mean, ambition can be a good thing. It can also be an absolute recipe for despair. The problem with the writing ambition is that no one wants to be a writer who isn't a reader. And we, those who want to be writers tend to be pretty good readers and appreciative of good writing. And it takes, when you, and when, when you first start this, this practice, you embark on this life, you're a good enough reader to know that what you've just written isn't the same as what you just read last <laughs> night. And, and that distance between what you're doing and what you want to do can be very discouraging and can only be bridged by just gritting your teeth and doing it more and more. Uh, you know, I have uh, seen all three of my children learn musical instruments, and I can think of no better way to learn about how uh, writing works in a way and how you get better in those little steps, those little incremental things than learning an instrument and yeah, okay, I couldn't play it, but I'll play it better tomorrow and uh, even better than that the next day or the month after that until finally you're playing something beautiful. And you have to have that kind of faith when you're a writer as well, but we're always, it never stops being the case that you always those things that you love, that you hold as models in your head, will always, to some extent, be at best a goad to you to, to write better and maybe sometimes at worst a sense of, I can never do that. Right. 
How about you, Gish? Do you, uh, do you connect with your young writer self? Well, you know, it's so interesting. I think maybe because for a variety of reasons, I've been talking to a lot of people today about gender. Mm -hmm. The reason is because I'm actually doing another panel in May. And so there were so many writers around. I was asking them about it. And, you know, and listening to you, listening to you read and then listening to you talk now, and I don't know how much of this is gender and how much of it is me. I have to say that I recognize almost none of it. Mm -hmm. And and I don't mean to, you know, no. that's, I mean, I'm just saying, you know, I was a person where the whole idea that I would ever do this thing never crossed my mind. I was a junior in college before I wrote anything. And I, I wrote quite by accident. I had taken a, a class in prosody. I was an English major, loved to read. Mm -hmm. um, and I took this class in prosody. I just I took it because I thought, actually, I know there's somebody in this audience who knows this class I'm talking about. It was, it was a class given by Robert Fitzgerald hmm. um, at Harvard. He was the, the, yeah, the translator. Sure. Wonderful, wonderful class. But he said there was going to be a weekly assignment. And I thought he meant like a paper. And it turned out it was a weekly assignment in verse. <laughs> and I thought, oh my god. <laughs> and I thought, verse. well, I can always drop, you know? And I tried to, but I said to I still remember the first assignment was in Cantone Hendrick syllables, something I could barely say today. And, you know, it's like, I loved it, you know? And I remember saying to a roommate, my roommate, that, you know, I love this, and if I could do this for the rest of my life, I would. But, you know, I'm the daughter of immigrants. You know, people like me did not become writers. I did, I'd never met a writer. I mean, the whole idea of becoming a writer just never crossed my mind. And so I was in this class, and I was, then I was writing these poems every week, and I was loving it and loving it. And had not my professor said to me, had you ever thought about being a writer? Now, I'm sure I would have a paying job today. <laughs> you know, it just never occurred to me. And, and I would say that, you know, my, my, I was also talking to somebody who, who knows my editor. My editor knows that, like, I'm always about to quit. And it's very genuine. I mean, I, I don't feel that I'm, of course, I'm supposed to do this thing or that, you know, I always feel like, oh, you know, I've, I've kind of said enough. And, <laughs> you know, they have all these books they don't need anymore. And it's, I can't even tell you how, you know, kind of w what a different thing it is. And then over and over again, you know, I have my editor, somebody will kind of coax it out of me. And invariably, too, I, I will say that my reasons for writing, it seems to me, are maybe not like everyone's. Uh, just this morning, I was telling a friend of mine, because, you know, once again, you know, I'm kind of getting older, you know, there's a way in which I could just stop now, you know? If, but if I asked myself, well, why can I not stop now? I can't stop now because actually it's been pretty tough being a mother and being a writer. It's been very difficult to balance these things. And the whole thought that now I would quit and that my daughter's narrative would be that as a result of having her, I stopped writing. Like, that's hmm. totally unacceptable. I, I cannot give that to my daughter. Yeah. I cannot give that to my son. Yeah. And for that reason, I'm stuck writing another book. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's, it's, just, it's very different. You know what yeah. I mean? I'm not thinking, oh, maybe I'll be Hemingway. I wonder if at the time, those figure of the great American writer was Frost and was Fitzgerald and was Hemingway. I mean, it was, it was a typically male thing. I wonder if that has changed. Um, for young writers, if you know, if they, if the examples, there's so many more examples of what it is to be a writer. But that yeah. figure was definitely male, certainly. Oh, You're definitely. absolutely. I think that you know, when I think about who I, you know, I want to be like, mm -hmm. 
Um, I have to say that it's it's never in terms of greatness. Like I want to be a great writer. And I can mm -hmm. see that certain writers are great, but when I think about who I really care about, it's figures like Grace Paley, mm -hmm. you know, and you know who really chose. And it's interesting you're getting this award, and you're a great example of somebody where you know being a great contributor to to writers and to the young is not at odds with great writing, mm -hmm. and it's not in her case either. I think in her case, she did hit a balance that was more weighted toward what she gave, maybe, than what mm. she produced. <laughs> and I think about that every day, mm -hmm. but with the greatest admiration for her. I mean, for me, <laughs> it's just not clear. And I will say that there's a way in which, I mean, I have counter voices also. Interestingly, um, I've always, I've been friends all the way along with uh, Cynthia Ozick as well. And, you know, Cynthia, when she would see me doing it out in public doing something, she would say, you're being a citizen. <laughs> you know, it's so interesting because she, you know, OZ and PA, they're right next to each other on the, on the bookshelf. But actually, they're, they're, you know, they have two very different attitudes toward the writer's position. And I would always, you know what I mean? And sometimes I'd hear Cynthia, sometimes I'd hear Grace, sometimes I'd hear Cynthia. But in any case, I can't say that, I mean, I don't want to make it sound, I don't want to speak for all women or whatever. But I, I mostly would think, should I be more like Cynthia or should I be more like Grace? And I never thought, am I going to be like Hemingway, right. or am I going to be like Bello? Somebody asked mm -hmm. me, well, what about Bello? And, well, you know, I, I mean, Ozick uh, or not, though. Well, I mean, they're wonderful writers. Good, uh, targets, yeah, no, no, wonderful, but, wonderful yeah. writers. But I, I just think, I'm just thinking that it's, it's much more like, well, you know, should I give more of myself this way or this way? Yeah. And I don't think so much about, I it's guess, you know, mm -hmm. achievement, exactly. Mm -hmm. It seems like those targets. It's more like a life thing. It seems like those targets drive you as a young writer. Are there books that you find yourself going back to now that inspire the desire to write to try to do that, that you know, for the, for the craft, for something? And are there books that you go back to year after year? Well, yeah, I actually have a little book club thing that I started at Stanford that actually is dedicated to kind of revisiting books. And just last week, we talked about Philip Roth's novel, The Ghost Writer, which is kind of perennial favorite of mine. And when I, you know, I, I, every time I read it, I learn from it again. And, and one of the things that comes out in that book is the premise is that this young writer, Zuckerman, is staying at an artist colony. And he goes to visit a writer he absolutely adores, E.I. Lanoff. And he wants to know Lanoff's kind of secret. You know, what is the spring? What's it like? What's the writer's life really like? Because he's just starting. And, Lanoff says, well, I turn sentences around. And then, I, and then I go to bed, and I turn the sentences around some more. And then I sit on the, go back to work, and, I, and when I go for a walk with my wife, I don't really go for a walk with my wife. I'm turning sentences around. It's a horrible sort of description of a life. And, you know, Strangely Evan Cannell once said, somebody asked him about, you know, what's the writer's life like? He said, well, I take semicolons out and put them back in. It, and that wasn't the notion of the writer's life that I entered on. I, I remember your Life magazine used to have those full-page Karsh photographs at the end. And I'll never forget when I was about 14 or so, 15, and, really, and starting to really think about writing, seeing a picture that he had taken of Hemingway leaving Madison Square Garden with Marlena Dietrich on his arm. I thought, that's the writer's life, and that, that is the life I want. And it didn't have a lot to do with writing. It had to do with being a writer. And then at some point, you have to cross that bridge from being the, the, this idealization you have of being a writer to actually 
what does the eights call it? The foul rogan, rag and bone shop of the heart that you enter when you actually have to sit down and do it. How about you? What, what drove you, Jeff? Me? Oh, I, I don't read. I have a staff that does that for me. So, <laughs> what, in that bar in Spokane? Right. Yeah, they give me great reports on everything. Though, so. yeah. No, I, I mean, I return. I'm in a men's Shakespeare club. Oh, um, which is so incredible. Fantastic. Six, you read Shakespeare? Six men, we read the plays, three scholars and three novelists. Uh -huh. And we come in and just say, it's so That's messed so up. <laughs> and just to see, and I, you know, I go idea. back to Tolstoy every summer, and just to see you know, that paradoxical view of human nature where we want love and love will destroy us, but with the lack of love will also destroy us. Yeah. You know, that, that fullness of character I just find wildly inspirational every time. Yeah. How about you, Gish? Are there you books know, you of course, I, you know, there are a gazillion books sure. to which I return. But I will say that, you know, when I, you know, and I return for different reasons, right? There are always different mm -hmm. reasons. But I think one of the things that I'm sort of fascinated by, and which I was thinking about because of your work, Toby, is just the enormous poise mm -hmm. of some books. Do you know what I mean? And I think that, you know, in the end, you know, when I, whenever I think of your work, I can, I sort of and this has been true, you know, for 20 years, 30 years, whatever. I always see a kind of a, a gyroscope, you know? Hmm. And it just feels like it can go everywhere, but you never, you know what I mean? It's, it's, and it can be wildly funny, you can be writing about really tough stuff, and you write about many very, very difficult things. But no matter how shameful something is, no matter how desperate it is, you write it, you hmm. never lose your center. And there is a way in which I think it's extraordinary. And I guess maybe just at least right now, you know, I'm interested in these, yeah, and how, and the writers that have this tremendous, tremendous poise, mm. you know, and of course that's many writers. I mean, you know, that's Jane Austen, that's mm. George Eliot, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's many people. But for, for whatever reason, at this stage of life, I am especially drawn to that quality. You know, which is to say, work like yours, which I mean, I think it's it's work that I remember being very influenced by when I was a young writer many years ago. I come back to it; it's still wonderful, but for a different reason. I think that when I was younger, the humor—you know—it's so sharply written, it's so kind of relentlessly funny. Do you know what I mean? I mean, you never—you know what I mean? You never miss a line. Now, now I see something else, which is I see this. Uh, I guess, I guess you would have to call it maturity. You know, it's this tremendous emotional maturity that kind of, you know, that kind of grounds everything that you do. I don't know if that's an answer. Yeah, no, I think it's a perfect answer. Yeah. Yeah. And you're both also accomplished story writers. And last year, after Alice Munro won the Nobel Prize and with the success of George Saunders' 10th of December, someone coined it the year of the short story. And I thought of you, Toby, because I think in the 90s at one point, Someone called it the renaissance of the short story, which exactly. you said implied that, it, that there had been a dark ages, which you didn't recall, yeah. you know? <laughs> not in this country, not since right. Washington Irving. Yeah, I mean, it's right. just been a steady lineage. Like Russia, like Ireland, there's a genius in this country for the short story. Right. It's incredible on how consistent that's been. It's been a pulse in our literature, right. really, from very early on. And you find that now, the, all the hand-wringing over the future of publishing and you know, all those things, do, do you give that much credence or do you feel like it really is such a healthy form, the story? Well, maybe just generally. I remember a friend of mine went to, all the way to Tangier to interview Paul Bowles mm -hmm. and asked him at the end, you know, is your outlook on things, is there 
something you want to say at the end of the piece. And Bowles said, yeah, everything gets worse. <laughs> and so, you know, we could do that. We could right. indulge in this sort of thing yeah. today. Things will find their own way. And none of us knows actually what is going to happen. This is an amazing yeah. Yeah. testament to the fact that a lot of this despair is, is perhaps misplaced. As long as there are writers like, like the ones you mentioned, George Saunders and Alice Monroe, who keep you know, vivifying this form and, and vivifying people's interest in it. It's just such a powerful form. Yeah. And it has this way of kind of entering in once we've read it, like memory. You don't mistake the novels you've read for your memories, but yeah. short stories have a way of getting in there somehow. How about you, Gish? Do you, uh, do you read stories still, write them? Is that still a vibrant form? <laughs> Um, it's still very much a vibrant form for me, and I and of course I read them with great pleasure. I, I think there's a special freedom, you know, in the story. It's like you have, you know, you have the great, the kind of, you know, you're right. It, it, there's a way in which, because it's narrative, and let's face it, we are hardwired mm -hmm. to absorb narrative, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a way in which you get the, you know, so you, you have you have the reader in a special way once you have the narrative, but then because it's so short, you have I think, just an unbelievable level of freedom, mm -hmm. you know, which you really feel in Monroe especially, you know, just, right? And, you know, this, oh, yeah. and there's a way in, in which, um, there's a way in which uh, the rules can be remade in something that's short, which, it, you know, it's hard to remake them that radically mm -hmm. in, in the novel because, you know, you've got to get people through those pages, got to get through this whole publishing machinery. I think that this, the story, the story is, is in, a, in, a, in a special place. I, I will say that you know, I'm maybe less sanguine than you about you know, the current state of publishing in the sense that um, I do think it's harder and harder for people to make a living mm. actually writing. And I see people where it used to be that they would come out, you know, they could be expected to come out with a novel every three or four years or maybe five. But now it's, it's very frequent that people are nine years, 10 years, 12 years, 15 years before, between books. Hmm. And that's tough. You know, I always just sort of say to myself, you know, I never want to be 10 years between books. Because if it doesn't go well, it's so hard yeah. to, you know, to start over. I mean, it's just, yeah. it's, it's so no, devastating. And the conversation is also true, you know, you want to be able to take a big risk. And if you have 10 years online, you, you can't take the mm. same kind of risk. So, and I think that it will also affect who writes, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, I think that there's, you know, there are many, many, many people who are on the margin, you know? And so if, if they can kind of squeak by, they will write. And then if they can't even squeak by, maybe, well, maybe we'll have two books for them from them instead of seven. Mm -hmm. you know, so I, I think it's kind of an unfortunate thing, I will say. That said, you know, the little presses are doing better and better, and mm -hmm. so the whole, the whole thing is evolving so quickly. Yeah. You know, I mean, I wouldn't say it's over by any means, but I do think it's kind of a delicate time for a lot of people. This is also, though, coming from someone who decided not to get an MBA and to become a writer. So, yeah. um, <laughs> so the, uh, I mean, the, the, the amazing thing, and I think you're right, being at this conference is you know, seeing that uh, the energy behind the desire to be a writer, to, to communicate, to push those things along. Yeah. You know, it's not even desire. It's, yeah. I think that many people, this is true for me, and it's yeah. true for many people, you simply don't have a choice. Right, right. You, you know? not write. Exactly. Mm -hmm. You don't have a choice, yeah. you know? Yeah. I mean, it's one of the things, I know for me, there was a moment where I suddenly realized, uh, it's funny, but because my parents were immigrants, it's very late real to realize that people died, because, you know, we didn't know that many people. I'd never been to a funeral, and I, I didn't really know. And then all of a sudden, I was in my late 20s, I realized, oh my God, like, we're all gonna die. <laughs> <laughs>
And on that note. <laughs> and on that note. And then I thought, well, you know, I'm going to lie there on my deathbed thinking, why didn't I try to be a writer? You know? And I think, well, you can't do that, right? And But I think that there, there are a lot of people where, the, you know, I think in this room there are a lot of people. You don't have a choice. If right. you're really honest with you, you don't have a choice. And so there it is. Well, if you don't have a choice, you have to find those great models to write. And uh, we should go sign books. But I want to thank you both for being the kinds of writers that, that drive us to want to write. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.